Uh, now we're going to switch gears again. And I was just, uh, we were just reminiscing before, uh, for the conference today about when uh, Intuit CEO Brad Smith first came to speak at the Lean Startup Conference. I can't believe it was three years ago already. Uh, I was pretty nervous because it was like really the first time we had, you know, like a Fortune 1000 CEO, a grown-up, come speak at the conference. I mean, we're like uh, <laughs> practically, uh, we really didn't know what to expect. And, and those of you who have read the book and, and have followed uh, my work over the past few years know that Intuit was one of the companies that has, was one of the earliest adopters of Lean Startup as a management philosophy to be used uh, across a company of thousands of entrepreneurs. And I'm very excited to welcome them back to uh, give you an update on their progress. Uh, I'll start by introducing their CEO, Brad. Now listen, about Brad, don't let the uh, West Virginia aw shucks thing throw you off. He's actually one of the sharpest minds and smartest management thinkers I've had the pleasure to work with over the past few years. Please welcome Brad Smith. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. There goes my West Virginia all shucks. I guess I can't use that now. <laughs> Joining me on stage today, I have the pleasure of introducing Laura Fennell and Hugh Malazzi. Laura is our general counsel, and Hugh Malazzi is a serial innovator and engineer inside the company. A little bit of background on both. Laura doesn't only lead legal. She leads government affairs, security, privacy, and also our data sciences, or big data, for the company. She's our Swiss Army knife. Hugh Malazzi has been with the company for how long now? 21 years. 21 years. Started when he was four. <laughs> he is responsible for most of the innovative ideas that you've seen in some way, shape, or form come from the company at Intuit. He's also the only recipient to the Founders Innovation Award. What that basically means is he's got a, a seven-figure package that basically keeps him staying with the company. So who says an exit strategy means to go off on your own? You can actually stay inside and get an exit strategy as well. So have a seat. And what we thought we would do today is talk to you a little bit about the journey that we've been on. And as Eric described, we have been on this thing for over four years, and I'll tell you, we're neophytes. We learn every single day, we take a step forward, we make mistakes, and then we quickly try to pivot from that and figure out how we can do even better the next day. And we're going to wrap this up in a set of lessons that we're going to coin leadership lessons. But I want to try to demystify that term because we spend a lot of time trying to define what we mean by leadership inside the company. So let me first start by saying our expectation is that everybody in the company is a leader. A leader is not synonymous with people management. You are a leader in the company if you're an individual contributor or you manage people. If you have an impact on a fellow team member, you're a leader. If you have an impact on a potential customer outcome, whether it's an internal customer or an external customer, you're a leader. And if you consume resource in any way, which means if you get paid, you're a leader. We expect you to hold yourself to a higher standard. And we believe the definition of leadership is simply this. Your job as a leader is not to put greatness into people, but to recognize the greatness already exists. And your job is to create the environment where that greatness can emerge, where you create the meritocracy of the greatest ideas. So what we wanted to do today is we wanted to have a little bit of a chat up here. And we asked Eric, how can we tailor this for the audience? And Eric said, well, why don't we crowdsource it? Let's find out what are the most important questions on their mind. And then maybe you can share the lessons that you all have learned and the experiences and the scar tissue you have and try to illuminate how you're working through it. So that's the approach. Is that fair? Okay. So let's start first with the first set of leadership lesson questions we got. And this first group, as you can see, basically all roll up for us in the form of how do you cultivate an environment where innovation persists? When you're a 30-year-old company, how do you do it at the speed of a startup coming out of one of the dorm rooms? 
How do you make sure that innovation is accepted inside your culture? And how do you ensure that you're applying these, these things not only to tangible product teams, but also to services? So what we want to spend a little bit of time talking to you about today is how do we take this on? How do you create a culture of innovation? I'm going to spend one second setting up a theory of the case, and then I'm going to turn it over to Hugh to share some of his experiences and Laura, who has a non-product area, and talk about how she's doing that as well. So let me start first with a very simple philosophy, what it's not. At our company, we do not subscribe to a genius with a thousand helpers. In fact, my company would not be able to continue to persist if it required a genius at the helm, because for six years they've had me at the helm, and Warren Buffett once said, invest in companies with great talent and durable business models that even a monkey could run, because if you wait long enough, a monkey eventually will. <laughs> and so far, we've been hanging in there. But what we have looked for is how do we create an environment where the greatest ideas emerge from the greatest, most talented people? How do we have 8,000 innovators and entrepreneurs who we happen to call employees? So that's what we seek to do every day. And let's talk a little bit about some of the experiences and how that works on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned innovation is everyone's jobs. Uh, um, you know, if you think about, you know, Laura's sitting here and some people think, oh, maybe that's an adversarial relationship we might have. <laughs> Um, since I work in the innovation area, and actually it's far uh, from the truth. We have a great collaboration where you find that everyone in legal is actually trying to help us innovate. How do we innovate and how do we innovate faster? So for example, we have something we call Incubation Week. Um, it's a week where we give teams focused time um, so that in five days they, they can have a minimum viable product that they release to market, and we have a website called intuitlabs.com. And so in those five days, the teams are working very hard. Uh, we have different people come in and help them, including folks from legal, because uh, often what teams are trying to figure out is, okay, what's my, what name can I pick for, uh, for the offering? And they want to make sure that they are following, you know, trade, they're not violating anybody's trade uh, mark. Uh, there's no trademark infringement, and we're, we're following the guidelines for naming, and Laura's team will be there to help teams. Uh, so that's how the collaboration works. Great, and Laura, how, how do you cultivate that environment when you have domain experts who've grown up in case law and courts and now you got to kind of take on some risks. So how do you create that sort of a gestalt? Well, the shocking reality uh, for a lawyer is when you go to a company, uh, nobody cares about what you do. Your job is not to be the best lawyer out there. Your job is to help the company move fast and innovate. And so um, we constantly challenge ourselves to think that way and to put our job in that perspective. So when we started uh, the Lean Startup Principles and started experimenting across into it, we put our heads together and said, you know, how are we going to be able to light the fire on this and help it? And as you know, we operate in a pretty regulated area and there's a lot of things people can't do. Yeah. And so we thought, well, let's turn it on its head and let's put together some guidelines on how to do this quickly, how to get to a minimum viable product super quickly, and here's what you can do. And so it was a get to yes. And in fact, just to test ourselves and innovate for ourselves, we actually went to the man. We the team went to Eric Reese, and we said, look, look at our guidelines here and tell us, would this really help if you were conducting experiments? You know, how would this help you go faster? And he said, you know, dear God, you know, no one's going to read 20 pages before they go do an experiment. This is the opposite of moving fast. Um, and, and you're actually not even getting to the most important part is enabling the customer to make the choice and buy at the end. So we thought to ourselves, boy, we failed fast. And now we got to start again 
Um, and we iterated and iterated both with Eric and with Hughes and others um, as part of our team to say, are we there yet? You know, are we helping? Till finally we got there. And so now it's just really a competition for ourselves is, you know, how do we put ourselves out of a job? And, you know, here you go and, and tell us that you're moving faster. Yeah, that's great. It, she heard, you heard a phrase she tossed out, getting to yes. That's something that Laura coined that now HR, finance, legal, IT, everyone uses inside the company. Our job is not to put barriers up and tell you why you can't. The job of all functions is to find a way to get to yes and to do it with speed as the currency. And I love what you did. You, you borrowed the Johnson & Johnson model. If a doctor can do it, figure out how to enable a nurse. If a nurse can do it, figure out how to enable a patient. If a patient can do it, figure out how to prevent it from happening in the first place and continuously take yourself out of a job. And then finally a monkey can do it. Hey, there you go, I got a job. <laughs> so that's sort of bucket one. And the headline here is we view innovation as everybody's job. Whether you are building tangible products or you're delivering services that enable tangible product builders, all of us have to find a way to reimagine and invent ourselves inside the company. And we hold everybody accountable for that. That's sort of the first bucket. The second big set of questions that we got I found very intriguing because at the end of the day, if you kind of parse through what these questions are getting at, there's an underlying theme. How do you eliminate the bureaucracy? How do you eliminate the barriers that get in the way of speed? How do you eliminate the mindsets that prevent people from wanting to move fast and to accept risk? And I will tell you, and this is probably the one that I can, I can kick off here. Our founder, Scott Cook, has a saying he's fond of, the mindset often in need of changing is usually your own. There's a different way of saying that. Peter Drucker says it, which is the bottleneck is always at the top of the bottle. <laughs> I live up to that every day. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about how you create an environment where you recognize your role as a leader, a people manager, a team leader, or even the person who's helping with resources is to enable and empower the team. And so to do that, I'll hand it over to, to uh, Hugh to talk a little bit about your perspective on this one. Yeah, you know, a key element of Intuit's innovation culture is unstructured time. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that innovation is everyone's job, so unstructured time is for every employee. And it gives them the time and freedom to pursue ideas that they're passionate about and they believe will drive growth. And so if you think about an unstructured time team, that's like an internal startup. And the last thing we want to do is get the bureaucracy of decision making, get that in the way. And so what we do instead is we teach teams these lean experimentation techniques so that they can get from idea to experiments in customers' hands without requiring management input. And what this allows is that ideas can prove themselves um, so that by the time you're now showing something to leadership, it's with data and hopefully the decision on whether to fund it formally is self-evident. And so, you know, again, if you think about the roles of leaders, you know, leaders issue these big grand challenges in terms of, hey, here's what we're trying to accomplish. And then they coach teams and help encourage them to move fast and get to data quickly. Now, for a leader, there's always a temptation to want to impose your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> you get an idea that'll come across and you'll say, yeah, you know, this is goofy. It'll never work. But you don't want to say that. I mean, it's like telling a new mother, her baby's ugly, <laughs> right? Instead, what you want to do is help the team figure out, okay, what are your leap of faith assumptions? And let's design some experiments to test those. So that in the end, if it turns out you were right, it was a goofy idea, would never have worked, well, the team has actually gone through a set of experiences that they can learn from. But if you were wrong, 
the great news is you didn't get in the way of innovation. You let it happen. Yeah. You know, we have a wonderful general manager inside the company, uh, Dan Maurer, and he's known for this phrase, which is, I've never had a good idea, and you can prove it. <laughs> and what he basically says is, look, I'm not going to add more and more to your concept. What I want you to do is put my idea into the same meritocracy that your ideas exist in and run experiments. And if it doesn't work, then we'll celebrate that lesson. If it does work, then there's a gift that I can give. And so I loved how you, you approached that. Laura, anything you'd add on this one? Yeah, you know, I, I'm approaching this a little bit differently from my perspective, because if you looked at the definition of bottleneck, aside from leaders at the top, you'd find the legal department. And so, um, so it's really important for us to work with the business, walk in their shoes and understand every time um, you know, we touch it, it goes slower. And so we have to think of ourselves as a bottleneck and how do we be proactive, understand what the business needs and what they do and get it to them um, before they actually have to use it. And so um, it's important to think like that. You gotta be on your toes, but it really is. We think of ourselves as a bottleneck and how do we get out of the way? Yeah, this, this concept here inside the company, we talk about it, it's, it's death to Julius Caesar. Many times managers and leaders view their world as someone comes in and pitches their idea at an idea jam, they're excited about it, we do thumbs up or thumbs down on whether we're going to actually fund the thing or not. And what we said now is it's the death to PowerPoint, politics and persuasion. It's the meritocracy of ideas and it's ultimately how do you not have to touch it so we can enable innovation to happen. So that's sort of the, the concept in a headline. Yeah, Make sense? Yeah. Um, this, this next bucket of questions, I will admit is the hardest thing we struggle with in our company. How do you resource innovation when you have obligations to continue to deliver short-term results for shareholders while building a confidence and a foundation for the future that won't allow the next disruptive cool thing to come out of a dorm room or a garage and take your franchise down overnight? And this concept takes a lot of trade-off and a lot of, uh, quite frankly, reflection and I will tell you that we, uh, we are the world's greatest thief of good ideas. If you steal from us, you steal twice because we've stolen it from someone else. <laughs> and Jeffrey Moore wrote a wonderful article on Horizons in HBS years ago. And we adopted it and then we translated it into our Intuit methodology and we call it Horizon Planning. Our teams call it Crop Rotation which is basically how do you keep the soil fertile? And in a headline, it's a 100-point exercise, and we take every product concept inside the company, and we declare it either Horizon 1, which are the mainline products like TurboTax, Quicken, Mint, QuickBooks. They have active customer bases, they have revenue, they have profit, and the goal there is how do you reimagine the growth trajectory for the future? The second bucket are Horizon 2. They're the fastest-growing adolescent products. They're often nowhere near break-even but they're sort of like an adolescent kid. If you feed them, they'll continue to grow. If you starve them, they won't be healthy. And so we look for that breaking point of how we continue to feed them enough to nurture and get their fullest potential. And Horizon 3 are ideas that are simply in the lean startup phase. How are you proving the viability of the concept, minimum viable products? We have a 60-30-10 philosophy, and there's two guidelines here. First, you're not allowed to borrow from one horizon to the other. You're never allowed to borrow from the future to fund today. You have to make trade-offs inside your own environment. And the second is you have to ask the right questions at the right times. You never ask a minimum viable product how they're going to produce profit tomorrow. You ask them how they're going to generate the love metrics. Will it nail the customer benefit? Will they actively use it? And will they tell someone else about it? And so those are the kinds of things we do in horizon planning. With that being said, it's a rough and tumble road. So Hugh, your perspective on kind of living on the receiving end of horizon planning? Yeah, I mean, we've been on this journey for a few years, and I'd say we're still, it's still going to be a journey for us. 
we work at this every day to get Journey better. it into it, by the way, is code for cluster. <laughs> we'll say, well, that was a journey. <laughs> Good. Really? That's what I've been saying all this time? Yeah. Okay. It's but, West uh, Virginia, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, just to give an example, we, we have a, a, a small team launched a, a new offering called SparkRent last year. Now, SparkRent, what that is, it's an offering that allows tenants to pay their landlords electronically. Amazingly, uh, most uh, tenants still pay uh, rent by check. And so they had built this offering. You know, it's great for tenants because you have a much more convenient way to pay your rent. It's great for landlords because they get their money much more quickly. And so we had this thing going. Um, and, you know, we, for all our Horizon 3 teams who are very early on, as Brad just said, we, we tell them to focus on building a product that their customers will love. You know, focus on that first before you start to worry about things like scaling and financial metrics. Well, our resolve got tested because early in the year, an imposter managed to defraud spark rent of $11,000. Now, at the time, that was about 10 times the money they had made up to that point. And Man the lawyers came in. Yeah, well... <laughs> Management freaked out, let's put it that way. They were getting like, what? You lost all this money? It's much more money than you've even made. And says, oh, you need to increase the settlement time to four days. And what that means is they basically they imposed on the team that uh, you had to put four days, four business days from the time the tenant pays to the time a landlord would get the money into their account. And you, the reason you do that is because the payment can clear uh, so you know that there's no fraud happening and you're not on the hook for any money. So that worked great. It addressed the, the, the fraud issue, but um, it worked against what we knew the landlords wanted, which was to get their money faster. And in fact, we started to see our landlord uh, retention start to drop. Thankfully, we came to our senses. We realized, you know what? That wasn't a really good decision. We're hampering the team's ability to innovate. And so instead, we said to the team, okay, experiment with different risk models to get around this problem. So today, we're in a great position. You know, SparkRent is now an H2 initiative. Um, it's, uh, it's processing millions of dollars of rent payments every month, uh, and it has excellent word of mouth. Good. H2 is Horizon 2, so it graduated from Horizon 3, and now it's into Horizon 2 and scaling, and now we feed it accordingly. Laura, anything to add to that story? Yeah, you know, I think it's a great example, Hugh, because I do think from our perspective, from the legal perspective, um, depending on where you are in that uh, resource allocation, if you're in H3, H2, H1, there's a different risk tolerance. And, you know, we can't treat something in, as an experiment the same way we would treat a problem in our QuickBooks legacy, you know, Absolutely. franchise. We have to approach it innovatively. And otherwise, what we'll do is we'll fix the problem, but we'll kill the business. So we really do have to think differently across those boundaries. Yeah, just one last thought here on horizon planning, which is not the only tool to do resource allocation, but we found it a great way to have both short and long initiatives going on. It's not only asking the right questions against the 100-point exercise of how you've bucketed your initiatives, it's also putting the right talent on the right teams. Yep. Horizon One teams typically love to be like a rowing crew. They're all about the lean manufacturing. They love to actually be in unison and they love being a part of something bigger than themselves. Horizon 2 team members are adrenaline junkies. They're whitewater rapids. They're falling out of the damn boat. You've got to pull them back in and every day it's just a ride. 
And Horizon 3, love the art of discovery. Diving for sunken treasure, they'll go in nine times and they'll come up eight times with an empty Coke bottle. And the ninth time they'll find a gold to bloom and they'll think it was the world's greatest thing. And you've got to match your talent against that because otherwise you find that you have someone who gets very frustrated with the role they're being asked to play. We don't believe in cash cows. No one is on yesterday's business. Everybody's on tomorrow's opportunity, but they all have a different role to play. So that's sort of that bucket. I'm going to finish up with a closing thought. Couldn't list them all up in Twitter because there were too many of them. But the question that I always get is, okay, if there's lots of things you can take away from a lean startup conference, as Steve Blank said yesterday, it's a little bit like Ikea. You come and you learn lots of pieces, but how do you assemble it all together? What's the one thing that I would offer someone based upon the years of us having continued to do trial and error and learn by doing that a leader, a people manager, a team member who plays a leadership role can do? And I would go back to something that Hugh said a few minutes ago. And that is the single biggest thing you can do is to paint a grand vision, a grand challenge. But John F. Kennedy's speechwriter once said of him, he's better than a great communicator. He's a translator of dreams. He touches your heart. He touches your mind. He touches your soul. And the most important thing about a grand challenge is it needs to be bigger than a single product can solve. It needs to put a dent in the universe. It needs to inspire the best in people. It needs to move them out of their comfort zone into their learning zone and push them into their panic zone. And it has to give you a reason to get up each and every day and aspire to be something greater than yourself. So if there's anything I can ask you to think about as you think about teams, if you actually create this grand challenge, paint this big vision, and then get the hell out of the way, it'll be amazing what happens in, along the journey. So that's it. That's our Intuit lessons. Cliff Notes version. You didn't have to read all of Shakespeare. You actually got the Monarch Notes and you passed the quiz. We're out of here. Thank you very much.